Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hi, Till Luca here. When I was looking for a publisher for the book I wanted to write, I was fortunate enough to have had two offers, one from a huge international media conglomerate and the other from Handspring Publishing, which was actually recommended to me by our guest today. Handspring is a small publisher in Scotland run by four great people who love great books and who love our field. I'm still glad today that I chose to go with Handspring as not only did they help me make the books I wanted to share and publish uh, an amazing book by our uh, co-authored by our guest today, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. And I'm Whitney Lowe, and Handspring's Moved to Learn webinars are free 45-minute broadcasts featuring their authors, including episodes with Till and our guest today as well. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check those out. And be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for a discount on our guest's book today. So thanks again, Handspring, for sponsoring our episode. And Till, who is this mystery guest that is with us today? Our guest, I'm so pleased that our guest today is Robert Schleip. Robert, it's your second visit to our podcast. So pleased and honored for that. Just as a brief introduction, you've been called one of the founding fathers of modern fascial science because you were instrumental, amongst other things, in organizing the first fascial research congress at the Harvard School of Medicine in 2007, where it turns out that both Whitney and I were in attendance. And in the four fascial conferences since then, and in the one next year in Montreal, uh, you trained as a certified rolfer, which is where I met you. And then you also, interestingly enough, trained as a Feldenkrais practitioner. And you've been a bridge, really, between, say, clinical practice of bodywork and, and science for several decades now. You have an impressive new book out, the second edition of Fascia and Sport and Movement, which you co-edited with Jan Wilke and Amanda Bart Baker, and we wanted to hear all about it. So welcome, Robert. Welcome a lot. And is there anything else you'd like people to know about you? Yes, I have been a good friend, collaborator, common troublemaker with Tillukau for several years uh -huh. now. And it's my first time to link with you. Whitney, I've been uh, uh -huh. hearing and admiring your work for many decades also. So I think what we share is uh, a dedication to looking with seriousness and uh, with an openness for new possibilities in the massage therapy, manual therapy, but also movement therapy field. So what, so what you said, Till, that I'm mostly spending my uh, most decades of my life as a manual therapist based on the Rolfing method is actually true for, from my perception. And the movement educator was always an add-on. And I've been lucky to be one, to be the first German trained uh, or the first German trained in the Rolfing method in 1978, spending about three decades with my clients trusting my hands before I took a sabbatical to visit science land. And I thought this would be one year. And I felt like Alice in Wonderland. I felt like these scientists are very strange people, but I started to admire and to love them. 
And then I extended my sabbatical for another year. And now I'm here 15 years later, still on my sabbatical. And still, and you're still actively engaged in science, yeah. I believe, yeah. as well as in bringing people together and writing quite a bit. You know, I haven't told you this, but I actually have a little note in my phone where I save questions for Robert. Things that when I get a chance, I want to ask you about. So I'm actually practicing a severe form of self-discipline today to stay focused on a couple of questions and mostly around this amazing book, because I was so pleased when you revised it. And I'm going to work in some of my questions as we talk about the book. But uh, is it okay if I just jump into that to start talking about the book? Because I'm excited about it. Is that okay with both of you? Let's hear about it. Yes, for sure. All right. The book's title is uh, Fascia in Sports and Movement. And Robert, you just described yourself as having even more background uh, as a manual therapist, as a body worker. How would you say the book is relevant to body work or massage or manual therapy, even though that's not in the title officially? Yeah. Um, part of it is based on research, but also based on my uh, own life and what happened uh, there. But based on the research, uh, I would like to point out that also in fascia research, one of the most um, high-quality researchers is Helen Lorgeve. She's now the director of the National Council of Complementary and Integrative Medicine. I said it without stopping even, which is, right, which yeah. is the world's richest and most potent research institute in the field of complementary medicine. It's a direct branch of the NIH here in the United States. And that is a position where I never dreamt of till that, that one of our people would get in our life chance such an important position. And in one of her very well done studies, she had shown that if you have a fascial adhesion, for example, in, in animals in the lower back, and uh, you and you do not you do not change the movement patterns of the animal, you only treat the adhesion, let's say, with a manual therapy, then you only get half as much improvement as if you also change the daily movement. And that's why my joke has been, uh, uh, or, uh, or why I created the, the joke, if you are a manual therapist who is not only a movement educator, you should only charge half as much per hour. If you think <laughs> about the value that your clients are getting. So uh, you can loosen some adhesions in the lumbar fascia. We can look at that, how we do that. We now have ultrasound to show it. Is the lumbar fascia adhered in this client? Then most likely fascia has a driving or contributing component. If not, you mainly treat the psychology or the muscles or something else. But if you only loosen the adhesion and change, don't change their movement habits, how they untie their shoe, how they use the elevator, how they do the stairs, how they dance, etc., how they go jogging, then you they will be back uh, pretty soon. So that would be a scientific uh, answer to your question, but also in my life, I, I started to discover uh, sitting in front of the desk and doing online education and then sitting in my treatment room is not as fun as if you also do dancing and running and uh, and Pilates and stretching and all these things. So this sounds like it's um, kind of a combination then of saying, you know, what we have traditionally sort of looked at as 
sort of fascial approaches, but also bringing in a lot of uh, sensory motor integration and motor learning and that type of thing. Would that be accurate yeah. way to, to yeah. refer to that? So uh, I think till and uh, when we started to uh, become assistants first in the Rolfing School, the manual therapy was considered to be everything. And then mm -hmm. some of the female spouses of some of the senior instructors, why don't we do also some movement? And we thought it's a nice add-on. But that has changed in the last 30 yeah. or 40, decade, 40 years uh, in the Rolfing School, but also in many other schools. Uh, this is now common practice. Uh, to change the daily movement repertoire of your clients is as important as how you use your fingers when you work with the adhesions or other yeah. or other other dysfunctions. Yeah, it seems I noticed in the book um, a couple times, and also we were hearing it a lot more in the sort of manual therapy communities. This term or concept of fascial fitness is mm -hmm. that's sort of where that's aimed. Also, is looking at um, you know not just trying to make corrections, but also in enhancing health of all those tissues too. Would that be an accurate way to describe that, that approach? Yeah. Um, it happened in 2009. I think, Whitney, you were, you were there at the 2007 conference where mm -hmm. you were right. I was one of the troublemakers together with Tom Finley and <laughs> Leon Chaitoff and many others where we yeah. had been catching the ball backwards and forwards and were very lucky to get this uh, tax-funded scientific event that was basically the... The, the boost of scientific research in a field that existed before, but more in complementary medicine research, but not in quantity assessment focused Western research. And it was the conference after that in 2009 in Amsterdam, where after one of the presentations, it was Yasuo Kawakami who used high resolution ultrasound and showed, showed us what is happening in the calf um, muscles, but also in the aponeurosis of the Achilles tendon when somebody is bouncing. And he showed mm -hmm. us that contradictory to the expectation, if somebody is bouncing at, uh, at the resonant frequency where the bouncing feels effortless, then the muscle fibers do not change their length very much during the bouncing. They are almost like only isometrically stiffening. And the Achilles tendon and the aponeurosis they are doing like an elastic yo-yo. Oh, wow. And uh -huh. that was the beginning. So after that lecture, several of us, we said, should we get together and discuss whether a fascia-oriented uh, movement education would make sense? And mm -hmm. uh, I invited uh, two dozen people, and we met. Tom Myers was part of the original group, uh, James Earls, uh, several people. And we met for almost two years to discuss seriously, uh, does it make sense that we enter the fitness market from a fa from a, in the movement market with yoga, Pilates, from a fascia-oriented? Mm -hmm. We have other things to do. You know, does it make sense? Isn't there enough already? And we realized after several rounds, yes, it makes sense to ask the question, yeah. if I guide movement not to train our muscles optimally, or not to train our mind ideally, or the cardiovascular system, but what is good for the fascia? And then mm -hmm. we rediscovered bouncing. It was known before. <laughs> you know, in Swedish yeah. gymnastics, they did this effortless movement. And that became fascial fitness. And we wanted to uh -huh. register it as a brand and become billionaires. But we decided, no, 
<laughs> so let's put it out, you know. And, yeah. and it's and it's so there are many many people teaching fascia inspired Pilates, yoga, etc. So uh, I think every massage practitioner, every manual therapist needs to have friends and collaborate with them regularly. What's new in the fascia fitness or fascia movement field? Yeah, I I agree with your. Uh, point, Robert, that movement is so important to getting the effects or the change we want to have in our own bodies and our clients' bodies. It's been an interest of mine. And you've been an inspiration to see how, as the years have gone by, you've done even more and more movement. And every time I see you and have a chance to visit you, that's the you know definite, a definite thing on the list, no matter, I think last time you had a cold and you still got out and did uh, an amazing bike ride with me and things like that. Mm -hmm. So the movement becomes such an important part I've seen of your life, but also of your approach. And I think you're, you're teaching uh, more, mo would you say you're teaching more movement than manual therapy these days? Is there a shift in that direction too? Uh, I tell you a secret. I do the teaching only to create money for research. And uh -huh. uh, so I do as little as is required <laughs> to get the most income <laughs> for my research. That is my main profession. And then whoever invites me for a big event, whether it's Pilates or yoga, I look at them, is their work respectable in my opinion? And I sing their song. Yeah. I say osteopathy is the best thing since ice cream was invented <laughs> or yoga or whatever. So recently you're right. Uh, I get more invited by the yoga Pilates people than by my old friends, the osteopaths and the structural integrators. But I cannot predict what it will be in two or three years. There's a, I, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I, I just want to somehow give voice to the body workers who don't see movement as part of their scope of practice, say, or something they're particularly good at. And uh, I know in the physical therapy, in the manual therapy space, when physical therapists and rolfers and massage therapists get together, it's almost a little bit like high school, where the athletes became the physical therapists and the people that weren't athletes became, say, the the body workers or the the people that sit and do their work more. <laughs> and so there's a, I think there is a, a, a place that I want to just stand for that says, maybe I'm not going to be an athlete and yet I can still do effective manual therapy. And actually there's still things in your cool book that I find inspirational, even just for my table work, as well as of course, all the movement inspiration as well. You are hitting something, but let's not for, uh, get there for the whole time. Um, <laughs> because we have been moving together. I, I, I'm sure Whitney, you too, but uh, Till and I have been doing that since several decades. If you go to a Feldenkrais convention or to an osteopathic convention, you have different smiles, you have different hugs, you have different handshakes, and many other bodily, physical, social expressions, which are very different than if you go to a, to a fitness convention. Even the body types mm. are different. And uh, so uh, it's, uh, it's uh, in the Feldenkrais world for a long time, they didn't look very fit and sportive. They had different clothes and they are more for quiet uh, approaches. And in the fitness world, you get, hey, Robert, let's do it. It's nice to see you. <laughs> you know? And I see value in both of them. 
And so I wouldn't say to the Feldenkrais people, you should go up and do uh, push-ups and you should do screaming karate from now on and forget your meditation because the mindful mm -hmm. listening quality is very valuable. And, mm -hmm. and if you don't pay attention and you suddenly do push-ups and jumping and, and playing on the children playground like we're doing with many of our courses, I look where it's a children playground and we do upside down swinging, etc you may lose some of that mindful listening quality that people who practice manual therapy, which is, uh, for example, Feldenkrais, individual work, or Bowen massage, they have, or osteopathic people, they have that mindful listening quality. And I think you don't need to give it up. Where When you enter uh, the fitness uh, uh, field from a fascial fitness-oriented perspective, we also voted very early on, we will not allow, at least foster, competitions because it would, it would be great for the field if we do a European competition or all who, is, who has uh, the fascial fitness, uh, just like in CrossFit, you know, where you give mm -hmm. awards, etc. So then people train in order to get an award and the whole field foster, fl flourishes. And we decided together with Tom Miles and James Alls, no, a competition is not good. We don't want to fo focus on performance, where people overdo their training and their, and their uh, preparation. We want to allow for this listening, mindful, quiet attitude. And so I think that's uh, common for all people, for most people who orchestrate movement training with a fascial orientation. And that is one of the chapters that we should talk on, fascia as a sensory yeah. organ. Uh, that's yeah. the one I just flagged yeah. here on our outline. That's that's the one one of the ones you chose to write yourself in the book. I think you have fifty something authors, mm -hmm. but a few choice chapters you chose for yourself, and that was one of them. Fascia as a sensory organ. Can you tell us what that means? Uh, what is what is how is fascia a sensory organ? Wow, that was a big surprise to me, as it was to many manual therapists. Uh, it's an old hat to Rolfus, an old hat to, to most massage therapists, in particular the osteopaths, that fascia has much more biomechanical functions than classical medicine we used to assume. That was an old hat to Moshe Feldenkrais, to Eiderwolf, to, to many of these people. But now the new discovery is that it is much more richly innovated than Moshe Feldenkrais or Eiderhoff were aware of. Yes, in the late 90s of the last century, they discovered a few nerve endings in the knee joint capsule. And that was important that we have mechanoreceptors in fascial tissues. And since then, the surgeons are doing it different. But now, we are learning almost every month how rich and how important fascia is as a sensory organ based on the richness uh, of the innovation in it. And that was a big inspiration for me in the preparation of this new edition here. Uh, I got together with Carla to collaborate with a German scientist, uh, Martin Grunwald. He's one of the world capacity on haptic, on touch quality whether you can train your touch perception, whether it's true that women have a better one, whether osteopaths have a better touch refinement uh, than technical people sitting on a desk, whether it declines with age. If you want to know that, you will have to read Martin Grunwald and his group. And he had done a calculation 
how many millions of receptors we have in the human skin. And he based, he based that on histological sections and then a calculation of the total mass of the human skin in three-dimensional space. And he came to 100 million. And then we got together with him and said, can we do your calculation and include everything we know about the human fascial net based on the new nomenclature recommendation that Carla and I had worked on in the Delphi process over more than four years, where we include in the term the fascial net also the loose connective tissue under the skin. That is very important because it is the richest, so the fat layer, but also the loose connective tissue uh, around the visceral organs and also the tiny envelopes that we call intramuscular connective tissue that you only see in the microscope around the individual muscle fibers. And then we worked on that for several months with the same mathematics, and we came to the incredible number. And this book is one of the first sources where we published it, that the human fascial net has 250 million sensory nerve, nerve receptors. It could be, uh, so we uh, did it as you need to do as a scientist, you, you share exactly each calculation step. So if somebody has other numbers, they can do the calculation again. And, uh, but based on these new calculations, we are now completely sure that this is our richest sensory organ, the human fascial net. You know, when you, I first encountered this concept, I think in one of the articles that you did for the Journal of Bodywork and Movement Therapies um, about the new neurobiological perspective. I guess that was around the early 2000s. I remember, that I remember. Article yes, came out. Yeah, but we didn't yeah. have the calculations then, um, yeah. I didn't have the calculations at that time. I'm curious about these calculations because this is really fascinating. Um, when they were doing the calculations, did you account for diversities in uh, concentration in certain areas, like, for example, fingertips being far more sensitive, let's say, than the skin of the back, because there's mm -hmm. so much more, um, you know, uh, rich innervation for those those kinds of tissues to pull in. Are, are those included in the calculations when you figure out and, and extrapolate it to the whole body? Martin Grunaut certainly did, uh, because mm -hmm. he is one of the best resources. How rich is your... Uh density of refinement in the in the skin of the fingertips yeah right. so i i see he did he certainly included that and then he made some kind of transparent assumption what is the average density and then he mm -hmm. included the whole surface of the skin so he did that in the skin and yeah. and color martin grunal and we we try to do it in a similar way for the human fascia based on what we know and, yeah. and we know, for example, that there are some fascial tissues, this is very interesting, uh, in the retinaculum that have a higher innervation than other tissues. And we included yeah. that based on the knowledge that we have. Yeah. Because one of the things that struck me about this is fascinating. It's a fascinating question, and maybe you don't have the answer to this yet, and this is something <laughs> I can maybe encourage for a question to be mm -hmm. explored, is when we think about fascial structures in, in like uh, comparing the skin to some of the underlying fascial tissues in the back, for example, we were using that as, as an example, the, the skin innervation is not really high in the back in terms of like two point discrimination, mm -hmm. being able to mm -hmm. make the distinction between those points. But it seems like the fascial tissues in the back would be far more densely innervated because of the importance of all the crucial proprioceptive information about upright posture and movement that would be necessary in the back 
as opposed to in the fingertips, for example. It seems like a lot of the fascial tissues may not need to have as much uh, input. Um, it's almost like there'd be instances where, where it would be reversed. Um, based on the model from Carlos Stecco, the skin is more for extraoception. So with your fingers, mm. you try to find out as much as possible for the tissue that's touching you on the outside. And you're not so mm -hmm. interested to know in terms of proprioception, what is the exact angle at your joints while you do that. So the skin yeah. seems to be more extraoception. But now the, the question mm -hmm. now also about the lower back is, what are these rich nerve endings that we have in the lower back, but also in other areas? And part of it is mm -hmm. proprioception. But this is a very interesting point, Whitney, because I went around the planet, made a lot of money for my research to talk about fascia as a sensory organ and showed them some roughing inspired loosening techniques and how important the proprioception in the lower back is. But now mm -hmm. Professor Menze, in his latest publication, he said he only found one Ruffini endings in hundreds of sections. He found lots of free nerve endings. Mm -hmm with potential uh -huh. nociceptive capacity, but it seems to be very poor in terms of proprioceptive. And that's not what I wanted to hear from him. Yeah. <laughs> right. so, so basically... And it happens in science. Yeah, yeah. So fascia <laughs> uh, is there for pain-related body perception. Of course, mm -hmm. pain is not only created in fascia. Your whole brain is... Uh, involved in your expectation but but let's say for injury related body perception whether something is dangerous or you for not and that seems to be very very rich in fascia and then less rich mm -hmm. is the proprioception where am i in space mm -hmm. is my weight mostly on the right foot do i have a lot of doses while i bend forward um, and uh, and we all know how important that is and for and for low mm -hmm. back pain as you pointed out the two-finger discrimination, which is a haptic test. You measure the sensitivity of the skin, but it seems to go one, two, it goes very much hand in hand with your proprioception. So when we do proprioception studies for the lumbopelvic movement, we do the two-point discrimination on the skin because it's cheaper to do than reposition error with the other experiments that we have with the yeah. other machine. Mm -hmm. So, so, so that's a little dive on the fascia as a sensory organ, but I think it's, it's the most interesting chapter and, and, and that's why I picked it for Carla and me to co-write it together. And, uh, yeah, I so, so lot. many, yeah. um, potential applications for us all, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, one aspect that we only, um, included in several paragraphs is the interesting relationship of these millions of free nerve endings that are not related to proprioception to the autonomic nervous system. And there is a rich connection there. Uh, so the highest number of nerve endings of a single type are not Ruffini endings, as much as I love them. Uh, they are not substance P positive free nerve endings associated with nociception, but they are the sympathetic nerve endings. So this is the richest type of all the fascial innovation types. And that is very interesting to us. And they seem to be also related not only with microcirculation, how much juiciness, how much ground substance water, how much blood do you have in the tissue and how stagnant is it? That is mostly uh, influenced 
by the sympathetic nerve endings, but they also seem to communicate with the immune system. And uh, this is, uh, I, I need to share the story and then I try to shut up. Uh, we had a, a COVID-related big event last year in May when everybody was locked in their houses at least a year. Uh, so we did a two-day online conference, Fascia Online or something like that. And we got all the scientists to participate for free that we wanted because they had, were in their houses and none of them was fed up with too much Zoom conferences yet. <laughs> Yeah. And it was a big success, and we had over 2,000 participants, and we made a lot of money by it, and we donated yeah. all the money to part of our university on this favorite subject of mine. So that was one of the happiest moments in Robert Schweib's life, when we made a 35,000 euro check to part of our university, for research, we are now uh, Katharina Fede, one of the best scientists from Kala Deco's group, is now obliged, but happily obliged, to work together with Carla, me, and Professor Neuhuber to learn more about the connections between the autonomic nervous system and facial properties. And I can't wait to hear from my results. Mm -hmm. But just, just to connect one dot, the autonomic nervous system, and it's would you say it's most likely that those are involved in, uh, well, actually, you said micro- Circulation. Yeah. I was thinking about their role in vasoconstriction, vasodilation. Yeah, that's it. Said right. So that's and, it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that the maybe the fascia is a is a circulatory structure or a fluid regulatory regulated structure, mm -hmm. or, uh, as well as a sensory one. Yeah. So we have, we have big discussions here in Germany whether drinking more water will, will make your fascia less dry because as we age yeah. we get drier. And you should link, should you drink six six liter on a normal day or only one liter? <laughs> and yeah. also, if foam rolling, which has a sponging effect, we have shown that mm -hmm. in two little studies. So if you use the right amount of pressure on the foam roller and you roll it slowly in multiple directions, immediately afterwards you have a lesser water content in it. But then, of course, uh, water comes back. Some of the old uh, dirty water comes back. But also new fresh water comes out of the blood plasma. And that doesn't have yet pro-inflammatory cytokines included. It does not yet have the free radicals, which are kind of a waste product. So for that renewal, uh, I think more than the sponging effect that I try to describe and more than flushing down water your digestive tract, and that doesn't influence much how much water goes in your Achilles tendon because the water in your Achilles tendon does not come from the drinking water. It comes from your blood. And your blood, mm -hmm. hopefully, you will not try to dilute it by drinking more water and have more water included. That has a constant water proportion. But then you want to know how much microcirculation is in the tissue. And then probably better than drinking water, I exclude old people, yes, they need to drink more, would be how, how can we influence our autonomic nervous system? And that is a, a very important dimension there. So that it, by influencing our autonomic nervous system that we actually help our tissue be more spongy, help it be more profused or help that fluid turnover, you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, that would be something after sports. Uh, you, uh, you want to have a, a, a higher microcirculation 
in your tenderness and other faculties use. There was a very nice study that is included in that book as one of the example, where they followed in Copenhagen 200 students who were regular joggers. Uh, on a level, I think they jogged more than four times per week, so most of them every day, for, for, so for two uh, years. And as you would expect, a high proportion, uh, I think 11 to 18% had Achilles tendinosis as regular joggers have. So if you go jogging every day per week for a long time, you have a higher likelihood of sitting in the waiting room of an orthopedic doctor than your couch potato brother, which is not the reason why you started doing it, but, but it's the truth. Right. If you only go jogging two or three times per week, you will be less often in the waiting room of an orthopedic doctor than your couch potato brother. So that is one, but you go jogging not to avoid the orthopedic, you do it for other reasons to get into nature, to be a more gentle person, have a clearer mind, to live longer in terms of cardiovascular health. But that is one of the trade-offs if you are a regular jogger. And they wanted to find out, is there any predicting factor that makes certain people more prone for Achilles tendinosis? And they looked at age, they looked at body weight, they looked at pronation, etc., all the biomechanics. And they only found after two years, two factors. So one was female gender, and that was known before. Uh, female athletes need to be more careful about their tendon than comparable males for reasons which are very interesting, which are also covered in the book here, based on hormonal factors, how, how, how estrogen is influencing the architecture of the fascial tissues. For example, mm -hmm. if you're a female athlete, uh, the injury rate is much higher during the ovulation days, six to eight times higher in jogger players. So that was one, one predictor. And the second one, and then I tried to shut up, uh, would be the microcirculation in the Achilles tendon after jogging. Those people who had a strong increase in microcirculation, and we now have measuring tools uh, based on ultrasound Doppler that can calculate not only the large, circulation, but the small vessels, they were immunized against overloading injuries. And now the big mm. question is, what stretching can you do? What foam rolling can you do? What heat treatment can you do? Or other conservative manipulation to treat your Achilles tendon after jogging that you are immunized against overloading? So that's a very interesting question for us. And you just to step back, you mentioned sympathetic. Uh, did you say stimulation? Yeah. For say, improved yeah. the microcirculation? Yeah. Okay. And so is that movement? And in the case of foam rolling, direct pressure? How do we stimulate? How do we do that stimulate, sympathetic stimulation that improves microcirculation? They would go in a completely other direction. So uh, more vigor vigorous movements can get the sympathetic yeah. nervous system activated. Um, okay. So it's, it's, it's parallel to fight or flight then? Yeah, then. a little bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. Does and, that mean and, if we're relaxing people, if we're focusing on, on, on parasympathetic effects that yeah. we're inhibiting that? For the microcircuit? Are we working against ourselves? Yeah. Uh, probably the best thing would be to get people out of stagnation 
that as a healthy child during a day, you have hours where you are napping and completely relaxed like a cat in somebody's uh, lap. And then you have hours where you're screaming and pretending to be robbers and policemen. (laughs) And you are big adventurous. And then when you go to bed, you really sleep. So you have big ups and downs. But none of the ups and downs takes you out of your balance forever. And as, as an adult, you have been, you had several traumatic injuries. I had several of them in my life. And then following the great teaching of Stephen Levin, uh, I know uh, of uh, 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 Stephen Porges and, and Peter Levin, we know that these traumatic incidents can lower your resilience. So you become more controlled because it happened to you several times in your life that you were so much out of yourself that, it, that you were injured and that you were not able. So that is uh, healthy sports. You would do some very quiet exercises. That's what we do in fascial fitness now, where you do very meditation. So you focus on your breathing and the pauses in the breathing after the exhale. And then you have other minutes where you're jumping and screaming. Just like in the old dynamic meditation of Osho, where you jump and you make fear sounds, and then you go into quietness again. So that would be one way how you can activate both the sympathetic but also the parasympathetic uh, nervous system. Okay. So it's not as simple as parasympathetic bad, sympathetic good in terms of, in terms of uh, circulation. Because if it was, I pictured a prospective study back to my high school analogy. We should look at the people that got involved in uh, active sports uh, back in high school and then look at all those people sitting around who got involved in meditative, mindful body mm-hmm. work mm-hmm. and now follow, do a high school reunion now 50 years later or whatever. And see of them see how, who is my healthy now. Yeah. That would be very interesting. <laughs> very <Right>. interesting. <laughs> yeah. 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 And what you but may find saying, too is certain types of things like you know certain portions of those groups have good cardiovascular fitness because they're very active, but they have, you know, chronic, you know, overuse problems or something like that. And another group has, has some different type of, of result. Yeah. As a scientist, I, I, from stress yeah, so I would say yeah. that's a nice study, but it would not prove anything uh, because you didn't control uh, people who are good in sports. They will decide it's, it's fun if they invest more into sports because they get more recognition. But if you are if you are grown up with a, a body that is frail, where you are always the lowest one being picked in football games because you are born in an unhealthy body, you will become a meditation teacher. <laughs> you will not yeah. because people will say, "This is great, Robert. You know, keep on teaching more," and you will not mm-hmm. get the same resonant if you go <laughs> to become a fitness person or an That's athlete. Right. That's right. We needed a crossover study yeah, where we redirected yeah. half of the jocks into meditation yeah. so and half these, of the freaks yeah. into sports. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, you mentioned Stephen. Le- uh, sorry, yeah, Peter Levine and Stephen Porges and their work around the the vagal tone yeah. and uh, the regulation of trauma as being influential or being something that you were uh, paying attention to. That's such that's such an interesting area too. That I mean, I'm just brainstorming a little bit. And I think in both of their models, they're thinking about this range more than saying, let's be sympathetic or let's be parasympathetic. They're thinking of this adaptability across that entire spectrum. Yeah. 
So uh, that, that is something that goes beyond the book, but of course we covered it in the, in the book once uh, several times, uh, the, so what we can describe as the resilience. So how, 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 how wide can you go out of your normal lukewarm comfort zone and be able to, to recover? And, uh, mm-hmm. and that is uh, an important dimension we know in fibromyalgia. Uh, it's the best questionnaire to find out if you're prone to fibromyalgia, not to ask them about how depressive are you or anxiety, but there is uh, several scales as psychological questionnaires on resilience. And it has uh, questions if something goes wrong, you spill a coffee cup, what is your inner dialogue? Do you say, oh shit, this doesn't fit? Or do you say, I knew it, today is a bad day, you know. My mother told me, Robert, you will be a loser, you know, and now it starts, you know. So so there are certain questions uh, when you're out of balance. So what good mechanisms or bad mechanisms do you have to recover? And and that is uh, that uh, that ability to recover. And, and in sports, it's very important that once a while you go out of your comfort zone but to a level where you then watch your organism to catch up your breath. So it, it, for most people, not for all people, it would be good that once a, once a week you jog so fast that you cannot breathe through your nose normally, where you lose your breath and your heart is pounding. <laughs> and then you stop and realize how long does it take me to come back into a balanced body sensation again. And uh, so uh, I have to be careful because the Nazi philosophy of my parents and grandparents uh, went in a similar direction. What doesn't kill you, Robert, makes you stronger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I didn't like that attitude. I do not like it. (laughs) And that's why I became a Feldenkrais practitioner and meditation junkie. And, but now we learn something similar from Wim Hof and other people, or from Kneipp, that it's very good once in a while to take a cold shower before you go back in the lukewarm water, in the comfortable warm water. And that is something also for the fascia, uh, that you go beyond your comfortable range of motion, that you stretch a little bit further than you would normally do and explore how that is influencing you. But you don't do it too often, and you know that the body takes time to adapt. Uh, I'm curious, Whitney, I just want to cue you up for if see if those, some of your questions are... Yeah, I didn't know if you wanted to go good. through the other things there. I am, I do have a burning question that I, yeah, I want go to, for it. to mm-hmm. dive into here, so if the, that's okay. So, yeah. Robert, this is something I've been dying to ask you for a long time, so I want to kind of to delve into this a little bit. That... Um, you know, a lot of when when I hear, at least in the, you know, I'm I'm most familiar with the massage therapy community because that's kind of where I live. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I hear uh, the people in our community speak about fascial work, uh, it seems like they're mostly thinking along the lines of the sort of a lot of the former um, uh, mechanical or biomechanical models of elongating fascial tissue with manual therapy by what we do with our hands. Mm-hmm. Um and as we know, a lot of the biomechanical research has not really supported that idea very strongly that we're able to do that, especially with the dense connective tissue in terms of elongating that fascia. Um, what I got a lot out of looking at the things in the book um, 
seem to indicate that there's all kinds of physiological responses being mediated by a lot of these other aspects of like the loose connective tissue and other aspects of what we consider now to be the broader fascial network. And so my question really is, is there something that we can call fascial work where you can specifically target a particular type of fascial tissue or should we really be looking at um, more of the the sort of the global effects on the large-scale fascial system from any type of manual therapy might include a wide array of all these different types of things but it's particularly difficult to say i'm going to target this particular fascial tissue with my manual therapy and do this thing to it and make it change this particular way let me start with what you said at the beginning and assume that everybody knows that and I would agree. Let me come back to your first uh, mentioning that uh, most manual therapists uh, think they know that you cannot change dense fascial tissues like the IT band. From traveling mm -hmm. internationally, as much as till as you are doing, this is a North American social media phenomenon. It's a gossip that I hear again and again in North American, and they think this is a common state. If you find out where those people who say you cannot change dense fascia, they usually refer to the IT band. And I say, do you have studies to quote? They come back to a paper that I co-published with Hans George Audrey and Tom Findlay, where we did diligent measures how much newtons per square centimeters are necessary for a plastic deformation on a meat butcher level, with, with fascia being put as a dead piece of meat on the table, how strong do you need mm -hmm. to push or to squeeze the Achilles tendon to yield to a plastic deformation? And there we came to the conclusion, yes, for the IT band, more newtons per square centimeters are necessary than we have in a Rolfus elbow. And for the loose mm -hmm. connective tissue, uh, the Rolfus forces would be sufficient. But we also concluded in the same paper, and that gets overlooked, that the human body is not butcher's meat. Our fascia mm -hmm. is uh, connected with an alive organism via the nervous system, which is cut. So you can definitely stimulate some Golgi receptors in the IT band, where then the tensor fascia lata or the gluteus maximus or the vastus lateralis change their EMG muscle tonus. And then mm -hmm. the fascia gets significantly softer. And that is something that you can measure. So we finished the article by saying this does, it's still possible for fascia that is connected with a living nervous system and a living autonomic nervous <laughs> system that changes the hydration to have a profound effect on the stiffness. And that was also shown. So one of the best studies now is that people with low back pain, their fascia is more densely adhered to each other and to the musculature underneath than comparable healthy people who do not have low back pain. That was clearly shown. Uh, and, uh, and, and now the question is, are our forces sufficient to loosen that? And I was a mentor of a study that is now published for the second time because it's a different uh, protocol that uh, normal foam rolling pressure, which is not as skilled as roughing pressure, is sufficient to increase the shearing mobility 
between the first layer of the lumbar dorsal fascia and the second layer, exactly where people who have chronic low back pain have their adhesion. So that means we certainly, using as uh, unsophisticated tools as foam rollers, are able to, to change fascial properties in architecture. So there is no question mm -hmm. about it. And whether you call it fascia so therapy or not, that is often a matter of sales point. So in, in Germany, mm -hmm. foam rollers yeah. are used as fascia rollers, as if they target the fascia specifically and not the skin or the muscles. And the same thing mm -hmm. a rolfer could be also called a lymphologist. So it, it's not what you do and how much data you have, but which tissue you want to use in your narrative to convince your clients. So it sounds like it, it's, in some respects, a lot more complicated than people might be sort of mm -hmm. making it appear because your example with the iliotibial band is really uh, involves a lot of the neurology yeah. of uh, decreasing the activity of the attaching muscles, gluteus maximus mm -hmm. and tensor fascia lata that allowed for a greater degree of pliability in the iliotibial band, but not it wasn't necessarily the the work that we did on the band itself that elongated that particular band, it was really the, the neuromuscular components attached to it that decreased its stiffness. Is that is that accurate in that instance there? We haven't measured that. Uh, so what we measured was not the stiffness change and also not in the IT band, but it was the level of adhesion or the freedom of mobility mm -hmm. of shearing motion uh, between the yeah. first layer of lumbar dorsal fascia. And you can compare that with the IT band. Certainly. Mm -hmm. And there yeah. it was clearly shown that you have an architectural change. So it seems then that a lot of the manual therapy techniques and approaches that people are using are probably targeting or, or taking advantage of that uh, physiological effect yeah. of enhancing sliding and gliding between adjacent tissues. And that's what might be getting perceived as the beneficial effects. And, and well, I want to tease, I want to jump in and tease those apart for a second because. We mentioned two things. One is the relaxing of muscles that attach to the connective tissue structure, and the other is the change in the hydration mm -hmm. with the shearing and sliding. Is that yeah? Is that right, Robert? So that was my state of two years ago, but now I'm a constant disciple of all the other friends out there. Now I think it, okay. it could be a third component, and maybe more than the first and the second, uh, that we change hyaluronan, and that is basically uh, uh, Carla's brother, Antonio brother. And they showed how important hyaluronan is for how juicy the tissue is and how much adhesion you have or how much. Uh, so uh, most likely the change that I describe in lowering the adhesion with foam rolling between the first and the second layer of the dense lumbar fascia was not that collagen fibers were, were collagen type one fibers were broken up or were, were plastically elongated. That would be hard to believe for me. But the hyaluronan, which is part of the half watery jelly-like round substance, that can change into a less viscous uh, binding condition within a few minutes of adding mechanical perturbation or adding warmth to it. So it comes back to the Galatasol model from Idorolf, which is not changing the fiber, but changing the ground substance. And we didn't know mm -hmm. that a lot of that depends on the hyaluronan in the connective tissue. Healthy hyaluronan uh, forms very small molecules and they allow slippery gliding. But unhealthy hyaluronan, maybe that's not the correct term, but under certain pathological conditions, 
particularly in an acidic environment, uh, hyaluronan can assume a supermolecular binding state and then becomes a sticky glue. And then if you have that two surfaces next to each other, it prevents a shearing gliding motion, the same stuff. And then the question is, how can we use our hands to, to break up the super molecules in, into smaller pebbles again? And the Stekos yes. were able to show that. No, they didn't demonstrate, but they, they showed indications for it. Uh, because you cannot film the hyaluronan. But they, they did a vigorous manual rubbing. And afterwards, you seem to have the more less viscous, more slippery hyaluronan in the connective tissue. So that would be a third hypothesis. And maybe in five years, we have another one. Yeah. I, so that was going to be one of the things I wanted to, to sort of like get kind of clear on, because I know a lot of people want to know, are there particular techniques or approaches that are better at this than others in terms of enhancing that particular effect? Movement. Uh, we yeah. have been talking, uh -huh. the three of us, you see how a little movement we do. We have been talking for the last half an hour at least only yeah. about manual therapy. <laughs> and uh, in the last uh, study from the Stecos, they were able to do a histological um, uh, investigation which fascial tissues have a higher density of hyaluronan. And to my surprise, they found out, of course, that there are differences. Some fascial tissues have more or less, but I was not surprised for the magnitude of difference. They showed mm -hmm. there is not a 15% variety, but 15 times more hyaluronan in certain fascia than in others. And that is much larger than I expected. And what they mm -hmm. showed, and that is very difficult to do because to measure hyaluronan, our lab could not be doing it because in a few minutes of air exposure, you change everything. So you have to do very, very detailed work there. But they were able to do it. And they showed these fascia, like at the retinaculum, where you have a lot of shearing motion in the immediate neighborhood. So underneath the retinaculum of the hand, ankle, of, 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 the, of, of the wrist, you have tendons sliding 10 millimeters in one direction and 10 millimeters in the other. There, the body feels like a lot of lubrication is needed. And they found the right cells. They are called fascicides. And uh, apparently, they produce more gliding substance where more shearing mo motion is happening. The other mm -hmm. tissues that had the least amount of shearing motion is the epimusial envelope around the upper trapezius or the deltoid. And that, if you try to move them in relationship to the tissue underneath, which are the muscle fibers, you can do that with any kind of meat on your kitchen table, not any kind, but with most of them. The epimuseum does, doesn't have much uh, sliding mobility, maybe one millimeter, that's most. So their conclusion is, um, if you have a fascial tissue, and you only move it one millimeter in relationship to the tissue underneath, you will not have much hyaluronan. But if you do large angular movements, as you do in your wrist, you will have a lot of hyaluronan. Now, tell me, what can we do for our faces if we want to have more hyaluronan? I have many clients in my Munich practice who go twice per year for hyaluronan injections. And then they really? have a younger skin, but it costs a lot of money. I know exactly because I collaborate with one of the dermatologists. 
But the body is not supposed to need injections because we have our own pharmacy inside, which are the fascia sites. Mm. They are specialized not on collagen production, but on hyaluronan production of the slippery quality. And now the movement application would be, you would need to yawn more often or to laugh more often so that the temporal fascia and the masseter fascia get not only one millimeter shearing motion, but 10 millimeter shearing motion. So large angular stretches would be ideally, and that would be a study, to find people who are only laughing and yawning on one side of their face, and then we do photographs of them. Of course, that's not possible. <laughs> and then compare it with the other face, <laughs> or we do it for a couple of months and then compare it with hyaluronan injection. So please do more large variety stretching movements, and that should give you more of the slippery hyaluronan condition based on this latest indication from the STECO investigation. So I see a, a, a potential for facial fitness yeah! coming down the pike. That's right. <laughs> That's what they need. And, yeah. and that is a nice story. I, I think I've shared it with you because I love it so much. Many years ago, I had a client. And in one of the cosmetic surgery, she, she went to the best in Bavaria from his reputation. Uh, he, he cut uh, one branch uh, of the facial nerve here. That happens in one of 100 people or so. And that was a disaster for her because she's in public life and needs to do public appearances. Wow. But with the spit ripping out of the right corner of her mouth, she said, Robert, I do everything to speed up the recovery. And she booked two Rolfing Feldenkrais sessions per week with me and did many other things. And I taught, I gave her some books on face building. I told her the re uh, recovery is better. If you keep the microcirculation active, that you do muscle exercises in your face. And she went with these books where you uh, stretch the auricularis oris and then you put your nose in wrinkles. But then I told her about the work of Stephen Porches that our facial, facial uh, motor uh, capacity is driven by, soci by social uh, activity. And she read everything she could get from Stephen Porches. She's a very smart woman. And she loved the material. She could tell me any part I had missed. And then she went to a friend who had a, a baby at the age where they cannot walk anymore, so, uh, where, 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 where they are uh, uh, one year or half a year. And she communicated for 60 minutes per day with the baby. And what do you do when you are communicating with your baby? You make big eyes and you say, oh, and oh, oh. And, and she, afterwards, she looked in her face and she could see immediately that this had one hour of communication with the baby. If you have any kind of motherly instincts left, and she did had a much more rejuvenating effect on her than doing the face-building mechanical exercise she had been doing. And that's what she did every day until she was complete, and then she returned the baby and went back into political life. <laughs> but I think... It, it, baby therapy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's great. Well, so movement is your answer. Movement is that you yeah. says what helps restore that sliding. I know some of us... Mm -hmm. Uh, myself included, are really experimenting with these ideas and using them, maybe we could say metaphorically because we don't have research to back it up, to see if we can think about uh, restoring glide, yeah. about changing hydration, yeah. 
about the the new metaphors that this brings about, like the bottle brushes and the mosses mm -hmm. and the precipitation more than fibers and mm -hmm. and stretching more about uh, you know uh, fluffing things up or squeezing the sponges, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Certainly influencing us on a metaphorical level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's um, uh, and a surprise. Just to backtrack, one thing you mentioned the retinaculum. That's one of the things that really surprised me from the book too. Is how much, uh, you know, how much uh, hyaluronan there was in the retinaculum, which I think about as a pretty stiff, dry tissue, yeah. and that makes me realize that my images probably come from preserved dissections. Yeah. Yeah. And pictures. Yeah. And that your point too about how it changes so quickly. I remember some of your dissections with rats, Gil Headley talking about yeah. this, other people talking about how quickly the fascia changes when you actually have, or Gimberto's lifting up living skin on his hand surgeries to show us all of that goo and slippery yeah. liquid right under the skin. So, how different yeah. it is on a living body than a, yeah. a preserved one. So, as a massage yeah. therapist, which may be the majority of your audience, um, don't rely on images from anatomical books because they are very misleading. Uh, rather yeah. remember the Gimberto videos because the body that is under the skin uh, is much more juicy. It is more like an octopus. The maturity, even in old people, even in, in very stiff tendons, is water. So you're touching a watery fish animal that has learned to walk on land. But still, the maturity is different, bound water, unbound water. And hyaluronan is a major component. So I think our massage should not address only muscles and uh, bones and joints, but how do I influence the water? How do I squeeze it in one direction more? How do I influence the water binding? How do I influence the hyaluronan with my manipulations? And then also, how does this person... Uh, move outside of the treatment room. And I think uh, every practitioner, this is not seriously meant, you should have a spy window where you look out, how do they go to the parking place and enter their car? You know, mm -hmm. Because in your room, they walked very gracefully and you said, right. oh, Susie, you, your whole gait has changed, etc. And then you see her later going to the car with her smartphone on end, and she is as uh, crunched as she was 10 years ago when she came to you for the first time. So I, yeah. so I think we need to instruct our movement to do joyful movement, not so much performance-oriented movement that you get more push-ups than your brother can do, but elegant movement, a variety of movement, fun movement. And this is not new. So this is the quality mm -hmm. of, right. of many yoga, pilates, dance instructors, that you get a better sensation of your vitality, also of the social dialogue, if you go in the face and neck expression. And uh, so I think uh, a good manual therapist is only one who inspires and transpires fun for fascia-oriented movement to the clients. If you say, okay, mm -hmm. find out what, what fits you, I give you some addresses, but they see immediately this is not your forte and you are much more inspired about uh, training the uh, tactile sensitivity than you are about doing trail running barefoot in the swimming pool or children playground 
or out in nature or whatever or dancing. Yeah. But if they see you talking with beaming eyes, how much fun you are having in your latest mm -hmm. Pilates or barefoot running class. And then you ask them, what do you have fun in? Yeah. And find out what they are inspired. I think then you are in a, in a good direction. Yeah, I, I do think this is so challenging for all of us from an educational perspective across the multiple professions because we we tend to live in such silos and in, in, in our education. We don't learn what Feldenkrais practitioners do and we don't learn what, you know, an Aston patterning person is doing. And, and that would be so valuable to be able to have exposure to those things to, to really give us a better sense of how we would encourage people to pursue those things outside of it because we know a little bit more about them uh, there. So. That's something we got to fix in the future, I think. So one of my favorite is, today. is to Not go in, in the stair. So your practice has a stairway outside. Of course, not in mm -hmm. underwear. In most of the practices, that would be not decent. But with decent clothing, yeah. uh, I leave 15 minutes or 10 minutes at the end of the session, not in the first session, but maybe in the ninth roughing session or something like that. And we do stair dancing together. And I show them how muscular stair climbing upwards is doing and also downwards where you go bump, bump, bump. And then I show them the panther style where you go gracefully up like a cat. And ideally are wooden stairs because they can realize if they go into this pretension mode, if they lengthen their neck before, if they land with a barefoot kind of sensitivity, they, they make much less different, they make less noise. And it also, yeah. and then I take their smartphone and I videotape them usually from the back, never show their face on a smartphone that you give them because then immediately they don't see the rest of the body. They think I look like mm. my mother and that's it. So, so I usually <laughs> videotape them from the back in a nice angle, of course, when they do the panther uh, stair dancing. And before I show them, of course, I get closer. This is your old walking style, and this is your fashion elegant walking style. And of course, they have fun doing that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but, but these are regular exercises that any manual practitioner can get from a fashion fitness instructor, Pilates instructor, yoga instructor, that, that comes from a fun-oriented, not performance-oriented, whole body perception, fashion net-oriented uh, movement orientation. That's great, Robert. I mean, I just it's it's always inspiring to have some time with you and to reorient around again what makes the most difference and what what uh, means the most. And it's so, I mean, you're so consistent over the years that it often is what's most enjoyable mm -hmm. and what gets us to smile and move the most as well. Whitney, anything else you want to cover today before we? Well, you know, there's a, a million things that I would love to continue going on and yes. on and on about here. But yes. uh, I, I want to, Robert, thank you so much for your time. I know your time is precious. And uh, these are fascinating discussions that we've gotten here, hopefully given everybody else some some uh, interesting light bulbs to pursue. It certainly has for me too. And I would like to just put in another plug to uh, everybody go out, uh, take a look at this book, because there's some really rich um, discussions of things from a wide variety of practitioners. And they're an excellent group of individuals that we've put together for the book, uh, Fascia in Sport and Movement. So uh, go get it, take a look at it there from Handspring Publishing. If you have the first edition, you will hate us, because as soon oh. as you pick up the new edition, I hate these authors. If I have their first edition, <laughs> and then the new edition comes out, and I realize immediately, shit, I have to buy it again. Because the changes right. are yeah. substantial. So now it's yeah. twice as thick, has more than right. a double yeah. number of authors. 
And the first edition but, was already translated into nine different languages all over the, the globe. Yeah. So, yeah. so that shows already why we were motivated to continue in this direction. And, you know, you all know also as authors, the, the challenge that we have uh, is that, you know, you've got stuff that you've put out there in print and then things change. It's like, don't go read this. It's no longer <laughs> accurate, you know. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm so pleased to see that you did take the time to double its size and add a lot more illustrations, including some from our beloved uh, Borgerie, I see in this book. Yeah, that was well our other so project, but we don't share now. We had a secret project while you came and we went into the state library here to look at the ancient old drawings, but that will be another topic. Another topic. <laughs> to be talked about later. Remember, you can get 15% off Robert's book, Fascia in Sport and Movement, at HaddonSpringPublishing.com when you use the code TTP at checkout. Thanks, Handspring. Uh, well, we have another sponsor. Do you want to tell us about them, Whitney? Absolutely. Our uh, closing sponsor today is Books of Discovery, and they have been a part of the massage therapy education for over 20 years. Thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. And in these trying times, this beloved publisher is dedicated to helping educators with online-friendly digital resources that make instruction easier and more effective in the classroom or virtually. And Books of Discovery likes to say, learning adventures start here. They see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast, and they're proud to support our work, knowing we share the mission to bring the massage and bodywork community enlivening content that advances our profession. Check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com, where thinking practitioners can also save 15% by, in by entering thinking at checkout. And we would like to say a thank you to all of our sponsors. Please do stop by our sites for uh, handouts, show notes, transcripts, and any extras that we have over there. You can find that uh, from my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And Till, where can they find that with you? Advancedtrainings.com. Robert, do you have a uh, site you want to mention at this point? FascialResearch.de is one of the more research-oriented. FascialResearch.de for Germany or somatics.de, both of them. And I highly also recommend looking at the Fascia Research Society, what a possible membership would offer, and also for the events that they organize. Fantastic. We'll be sure to put links to all that in the show notes. So if there's questions or things you want to hear Whitney and I talk about, email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media. My, just to, search my name, Till Luca, or how about you, Whitney? Also, yeah, you can just search my name on social as well. And if you would, please rate us on Apple Podcasts as it does help other people find the show. And you can hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you happen to listen. And please do share the word about the podcast and tell a friend. And if you're unable to find us on any of those locations, you can always dial TTP on an old rotary dial telephone and listen to us right there. No. So, yeah. <laughs> That's nice. it for our show today. Thank you again, Robert, so much for being with us. And uh, we will uh, look forward to uh, seeing you again here in a couple of weeks. <laughs>